The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Um, If you don't, that's okay. Uh, I'm going to read the passage after I pray. And then we're actually going to circle back around, and I will project it up onto the screen at that point. But if you want uh, to simply listen as it's read, um, that's, that's cool too. So we'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. I'd like to pray, and then we'll jump right in. God, we're thankful uh, for the world that you've made, that we inhabit a world of color of light, um, things that we can see, things that we can hear. Uh, We are thankful for the goodness and the glory that we see in your world. As we turn our attention to your word now, we're thankful that you have uh, embedded truth in story in ways that engages our hearts and our minds and our senses, that as we read about your life, Uh, We're not just reading a series of statements that you made a long time ago, uh, but that we can see them embedded in a context, that we can learn from your example as you related to other people, and that that is all before us in translations that we can read. Uh, We don't take this for granted, and we do thank you for it. As we enter into your word this morning, open us up to what you have for us. Help us to see uh, your actions and your interactions with fresh eyes, to hear your word together, uh, and um, that this time might direct us to things that are true, that might enhance our worship of you and our appreciation for the life that you've given us. Amen. So I'd like to start with uh, just reading the passage. Today's going to be a little bit different. but I'll explain a bit more of that in a moment. So uh, I'm in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. I was told just to keep talking and that our sound team would take care of everything, literally everything. All right, I'll read. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued servant of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his servant. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go or come, and they come. And if I say to my servants, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, 
I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the servant completely healed. So today, as we enter into this text, I'm going to be a little bit more teachy uh, than, than preachy. Um, for those of you that know me at all, uh, it's likely going to come as no surprise that my heart really is for each of us to engage the text of Scripture in the most formational ways that we can. And most often, what that means is slowing ourselves down so that we can engage uh, with a text. We have to make careful consideration of the text before us, and that careful consideration, or what we and what the Bible does call uh, meditation, is dependent on our ability to slow down and to observe. So, in my opinion, the battle is fought and won in the realm of dispositions and not content, right? So, a lot of the evangelical enterprise is designed around content, it's delivering knowledge. Where I feel like reading formationally is a matter of disposition. So the, the character traits that you show as you read. So if you're somebody who's fast and blows through text, like that's a disposition that will deny us access if we're not careful in our consideration. So I want to introduce some practices that might slow us down. We want to be the type of people who are careful in our consideration and open to what God is saying and what he's doing rather than just learning facts. And my motivation to do this isn't uh, anything other than I think that that is a gateway to spiritual health for us as individuals. And I also feel that way about us as a community, that the more healthy we are as individuals, uh, the more that's going to contribute to community health. And I would even take that a step further to say, we have this beautiful vision in the New Testament of sort of a democratic kingdom where everybody participates, where this sage on the stage thing is gone and that people come together and each person makes a meaningful contribution. So you read 1 Corinthians 14, for example, where you have everybody exercising their gifts uh, in a way that's meant to edify the whole. So when we are engaged in these sort of practices, um, that helps us to come together in more whole and complete ways, where everybody's participating, where we're all edifying one another. So this week and next week, what we're going to do is we're going to consider just two different types of stories in the Gospel of Luke. And the purpose here is not to be theoretical. Uh, I'm I'm much more interested in concrete practices, like something that I can cash out tomorrow or even later this afternoon. So I like ideas. They're all wonderful, but unless I can cash them out in a specific practice, it's not really helpful. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this passage. I'm going to introduce some questions. Uh, and they're not, there's no magic formula here. There's no, <laughs> no witchcraft or sorcery happening. It's just questions that are designed to slow us down and consider the passage carefully. And what I would suggest, if you're not currently engaged in, you know, a particular passage of Scripture or a particular book, is you could apply this framework to next week's passage, which is Luke 7, 11 to 17, and try it out. And that's what it is, is trying it out. It's a practice. It's adding tools uh, to the toolbox. It's a way of engaging the text where there's not immediate cash value. And I'm happy to entertain any questions on that because I do think 
as I said, that the battle is fought and won there. Like the whole, if I could paint with the broadest possible brush, the whole monastic movement in the Christian church comes out of the fact that the church was just very distracted in their culture. And that was like a thousand or longer years ago. So you can imagine how much more pronounced the problem comes becomes now in an age like ours. So they developed these practices just to slow people down so they can observe what's happening in the text in careful ways. There's no magic. Uh, there's no, like, these might not even be the right questions for you, but it's just meant to slow us down. So as we, I'm going to talk through the questions first. I think it will be a pretty straightforward operation. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll actually work back through the passage and we'll make some observations together. So this will be a little bit more, a little bit more teachy than preachy. And then just so everybody's getting their money's worth, I'll make a couple observations at the end just so that, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a complete fraud up here. So there's a, couple, there's a couple things that I think are worth mentioning. A couple things that might not be immediately accessible as you're reading the text. There's some like translation things that are a little bit interesting and not like to be tedious or anything. It, it actually like changes how you would hear the passage. So uh, if you have, if you like a, like a, one of those clicky things, the phone, um, you could just take a picture or I could send it out later. So the first and the question that we're going to consider most uh, today is who are the people involved? Right, and how are they being portrayed? Al, I'd be happy to get, like, you know, just if you want to hashtag me in there, yeah. Um, so, who are the people? And again, as we're reading through the passage, there might not be a lot of people, right? So, this question might be one that you skip. Uh, every passage is a little bit different. The second is to slow down and just ask, where is this taking place? And what are the actions? What are the times? What are the places? Like, this is kind of a where question. And is there any significance to that? And I just want to say that there might not be, right? The only point in the question is to slow us down. Next week, I think you're going to see the where question is actually critically important. Today, not so much. So spoiler alert. Um, I don't know anything about Capernaum. And my strategy usually is, like, if I come across a place, I just ask Cynthia, like, is this significant to the passage? Because she's probably been there. Um, and she's just super smart about those things. I usually just pass over it because uh, geography is not my thing. But it could actually be important. Third is what theology, if any, is being presented. Theology not as this austere, boring long-winded. It's just, what are the, the most things that we can say about God and about his world and about our life in him? So I mean theology in the broadest possible sense. Like, what does this passage say about God? And then what is this story, or how does it function within the gospel? Like Luke as an independent entity, but then also to consider, like we have four gospels. So some of these stories happen in multiple different places. Sometimes, like next week, they only happen in Luke's gospel. So we just slow down to consider why might that be. So these questions can easily be applied to any text in the gospel. And again, there's no magic to it. It's just an act of slowing down. Um, and as we do this, as we cultivate these habits, as we add these tools to our toolbox, I think we're on our way to cultivating spiritual health. 
where insight breeds more insight. Like if you just envision this for a minute, just imagine that all of us are coming together from the complexity of our experiences throughout the week, but also coming from a place of having really engaged our time with God in a careful and attentive, a listening way. And we bring that all together in the context of community life. I just think that's rich. And I see this as connected to what David was talking about last week in terms of laying a foundation. So what I'd like to do is just work through, uh, today we're just going to look at the first question. Um, is there anything uh, like people-wise? So I'm going to read the passage again. If you're a visual learner and don't have a Bible, uh, this will be up on the screen. I couldn't make it any bigger without making it like 15 slides. But if you're just listening, that's okay too. So the question I want you to answer is just to make note of the people. Like who is there? And is there anybody that you identify with right off the bat? Like you're just looking for something that pops a little bit, right? And that could be different for everybody. This isn't a right or wrong sort of thing. You're just looking for what kind of jumps off the page. So I'll read the passage again. If you want to follow along on the screen, uh, you're welcome to do that, or if you want to just listen. So here we go. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued servant of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his servant. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home. For I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my servants, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the servant completely healed. So now I turn the question to you. Is there anybody character-wise here, as you slow down, you think, oh, that pops. And I'm just looking for a, just a, you don't even have to answer why, just is there somebody that kind of leaps off the page? Yeah. The centurion. the centurion, excellent. He's prominent, for sure. Others. The Jewish elders, yeah. Yep. The friends, yep. Contingent of friends. Anybody notice Jesus? It felt like a Sunday school answer, so nobody really wanted to give it. Servant. Yep. Now, if you were engaged in this practice, what you would do next is you would ask, why is it that that particular person popped? Like, why is it that I noticed them? And there might not be an immediate 
right? I know I, I can't sit here for the next 15 minutes and wait for you to come up with, with why, but you may have an immediate why. And just to say for myself, as I was reading this, what I um, actually even yesterday was reflecting on was Jesus and the fact that he doesn't say a whole lot here. Doesn't need to be, and, and there could be a lot of reasons why that is factually, but I need to ask myself, why is it that I'm drawn to the relative silence of Jesus here? That he, he's just sort of observing things. And I did reflect on like, Jesus is so, I mean, it could be a bunch of different things. First, it could be he just finished the Sermon on the Mount and he's tired of talking. That's entirely possible. He's just, just worn out. The other thing could be like personality-wise, he's so secure in who he is, he doesn't need to say a lot of things. Like he doesn't have to have the last word or expound on things that nobody's asking, right? That's entirely possible. What about the Jewish elders that come? Any thoughts on? Yeah, so you're, you're used to Jesus having these confrontations with Jewish elders, and yet here's at least a group of them seeking him out. And as to why, that's a whole separate matter. But, um, but what's interesting, I guess, to me is like the power dynamics is, first of all, it's a centurion. So we have all that negative association with, with the Romans, theoretically, and yet there's none of those negative associations here. Like, this is actually a good guy, like among the Romans. So it, it does at least add texture to our reading of the Gospels that not all Romans are sick, twisted, and evil. Like, here in the broadest categories, Jewish people don't like the Romans, but here's a good guy. So I could picture that in this broad category of Yankees fans, I despise them and everything they're about. And yet, as an individual, I could, I could find meaningful points of connection, even, even with a Yankees fan. Uh, interesting. If anyone deserves your help, I would guess it was the centurion. And they say, like, he built our synagogue. Um, whether that means he actually, like, literally built it, I guess it's possible that the servant just really has a lot of bricklaying skill. Like, that, that could be... Um, but it's more likely the power dynamic, the prominence of the, the centurion. So those dynamics are interesting as well. Anything else on that? And the point being, to go back to my original point, was when we slow down with this, like we're much more apt to make careful observations. And then we just have to ask the question, eventually, like once we answer all the what questions, then we start to answer the why, because we do believe as Christians that Scripture is living and active. Like, that's what the New Testament says about the Bible, that Scripture is living and active, that this isn't a dead letter. It's not an artifact of history. It's part of how God wants to shape us. So there has to be ways in which God is trying to say something to me in the here and now. So once I start to sort of lock down the what questions, then I can start to reflect on why. Like, why is it that that uh, became particularly important at this time? And what's also interesting as a reader of the Bible is to attest to multiple readings of something actually changes how you read it depending on what stage of your faith, what stage of life, personal circumstances at the time. 
Scripture is living and active in that way, that I can read Luke, um, I can say five years ago, and none of the things that I connected with were the same this time. It doesn't mean that any of that was invalid or, or pointless. It just means God wants to meet me in the here and now, and that's, that's what the gospel does. So that's just a, a light uh, introduction um, to how this goes. And you can see how that's just one question, right? If you stop to ask, is there a certain theology being presented? How does this connect with other parts of the gospel? It's all just intended to slow us down. And if I had to diagnose like three or four issues just in our culture in general, it's, we just have to slow down. Um, and by slowing down, we're actually paying attention to the words and not just reading our own framework into the text. Um, so anyway, that's that. What I'm going to do is just make two observations here uh, from, from a preaching standpoint, and then if there's any questions, I'll happily answer those, and then I will usher myself off the stage. So two things to observe here. One that jumps out at me is the amazement of Jesus. Now, that should catch you off guard a little bit, um, especially if you have like a view of Jesus as the omni, omni, omni and all that. Like the fact that uh, verse nine, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed, right? So I would like to focus just for a couple, a couple minutes on Jesus' amazement. And there's not a whole lot to say other than it's astonishing that Jesus can be astonished. If you grew up in the church, my guess is that's a little bit surprising to you. Um, and there are moments where it's helpful to engage the text in this way, and, and with fresh eyes. Like, actually, sometimes people who didn't grow up in a church setting read this with a fresh set of eyes because they're just not conditioned to read the text in other ways. Um, at a minimum, it's a helpful reminder of what is the consistent New Testament testimony of Jesus and his experience of humanity. And I put a couple Hebrews verses on slides. Yeah, so Hebrews 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are and yet without sin. So the fact that Jesus entered into human experience might be a new category for you or might be something that you need to spend some time reflecting on. Like, what would it look like uh, for Jesus to experience amazement? And if he's modeling perfect humanity, which I believe that he is, what does that look like for me? And then the next one, Hebrews 5, 8 to 10 it says, although he was a son, he learned, past tense, obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And we've seen these sorts of things in Luke before, where back in Luke 2, it says that Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with both God and men. So this idea that Jesus, the creator of all things, has actually entered into human experience in such a way that he experiences what we experience. I don't know about you, but that's super helpful for me to think about day by day, that I don't, I don't worship or serve or follow a God who doesn't know what my day-to-day -day feels like. That's, at least to me, is, is incredibly important. So Jesus can be surprised. He can be stunned, amazed, however you want to translate that, because he's chosen to enter into the full range of human experience. 
And what happens in this story is he responds with this sort of gracious joy because he's open to his experiences, right? So just the idea, and I might be reading this into the text, so you can, you know, have at me in the question time. Just the fact that Jesus could look at a person or listen to this declaration and say, huh, like, (laughs) that he could be surprised by something. And I don't know if your framework of Jesus is that like when he plays wiffle ball, he always has to throw strikes. I don't know. Like if you think that everything just has to be always perfect, not that Jesus played wiffle ball, though I do believe that the invention of wiffle ball came directly from the hand of God. That's not germane to my point. That'll be at another time. But the fact that he can can experience astonishment and he can experience this sort of gracious joy is helpful for us as well. So I think this is a good time to pause and ask, where do we experience the same joyful surprise that he felt with the faith of the centurion? And I think that theologically, if I can use a big word, this shows just a gracious and positive view of God picture that Jesus has this delighted surprise at the faith of the centurion. And it just shows Jesus' openness to what's before him. He doesn't have a pre-established framework. Uh, He's not looking for things to go wrong. He's open to what is. And I think that that's worth reflecting on. Because depending on which evangelistic approaches uh, you're accustomed to, You may be used to a lot of fear and anxiety that you're going to say the wrong thing, like when you're evangelizing somebody, or that you are going to do the wrong thing or not say enough, or all those other sorts of things. Making sure that somebody believes every single right thing so that they can gain entrance into the kingdom. Like A lot of evangelistic enterprises are built around fear, and I don't think that that's what we see here. Jesus just simply delighted and surprised at the man's faith. There's no checklist of doctrinal beliefs. Not saying those aren't important. You just don't see them here. And the fact that Jesus commended his faith as even better than what he had seen in Israel puts it at a pretty high level. Like, I think I would want to be commended in this way, not just to have, like, Peter's doctrine is so pure. Like, there's none of that here. Like, there's some disposition in this guy that Jesus sees and admires. Um, Just the surprise and acknowledgement that Jesus had never seen faith of this sort. So anyway, that's Jesus' amazement. Happy to entertain questions if I've gone rogue there or said anything heretical. But that brings us to our last point, which is the faith of the centurion. So one final thing to draw your attention to is how Jesus describes the centurion's faith. And depending on which translation you're looking at, I think uh, it can make a difference. So uh, Jesus says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And I don't know that this falls strictly into a theology category, but it does speak to an important element in our spiritual lives. Specifically, how do we think about the concept of faith? So um, I think we're somewhat conditioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, we tend to think about faith as a how much. Like I don't have enough faith. So we're thinking in terms of quantity um, versus a what sort of faith are we looking at, which is more of a quality question. 
I don't know if the distinction makes sense. I can see a couple head nods, yes. Uh, so I'm, I'll go with that. Um, another way of translating the sentence is to say, I have not found faith of this sort, even in Israel. And the word itself is ambiguous, and it could mean both. Depending on the context, uh, it does actually mean like how much of something, like the loaves and the fishes where they're like counting things. That, that's a how much question. Um, but there are other contexts where it's a what sort of faith is it? And I think the, it's not like an either-or option, quite frankly, but it does help to add sort of a, a different shade to it sometimes if we think of what sort of faith versus how much. And I'll be very practical, and this is just my personality, so if it doesn't fit you, just ignore it. Whenever people talk about how much faith, like I remember that as a young Christian, I was in college and I was just soaking in everything and people were speaking in a language that I didn't understand, but they kept talking about how much faith. And I just thought, I don't get that. Like, how do I do that? Like, do I sit and just think real hard? And the, am I doing it right? Like, I never quite understood um, what that meant. Um, and then, over time, started to think about it more as a quality element. Like, what can I do to, to enhance the quality of my faith rather than generate a lot of it? Because if I can be completely transparent here, I don't have faith enough to fill, like, a mug. Like, in terms of amount, it just isn't going to happen for me. Uh, but I think I can say on the more positive side of the ledger, I do have more constructive practices around the quality of the faith that I have. So one helpful way to think about it is not so much how much faith you have, but what your faith is in and cultivating it that way. So to borrow Jacob's example from a couple weeks ago, he had talked about a gratitude exercise where you're just listing the specific things that you're grateful for uh, each day. And the idea is that you're forcing your mind to think through all the things that you have to be grateful for and part of the discipline is you can't name the same thing day by day. So you're naming things that are incredibly specific. I got to have this conversation with a student. The lilacs are blooming. Um, caught all the green lights on the way to work. Like you're just, you're grabbing at anything, but the sun came. Like it just all those, all those sorts of things. And then as a final step, you're just incorporating the thinking of James 1.17 where he says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. So here, James acknowledges that all gifts come from God and that God doesn't change. So as I'm reflecting on all of these sorts of things, I'm not arbitrarily, generally thanking the universe for all of the good things that are there. I'm specifically focused on the Creator, Jesus, how generous of you that I exist in the first place. How kind that I get to have these conversations, these experiences, these friendships. There's color. Like, there's really interesting shades of blue, right? And, and what we do is we take general categories and we specifically thank Jesus for them. I think that this is just one very specific example where we cultivate the quality of our faith in Jesus. 
that we firm up the foundation that we're standing on, that he is the maker of all things. He is good. He is kind. He is generous. And why does this distinction matter? I think that some of us do experience a certain amount of shame that we just don't have enough faith. When maybe if we were to reframe the question and just ask, what type of faith am I looking at? It's the sort of faith here that Jesus is astonished by, not how much of it there is. So again, put another way, it's not how much faith you have, but who or what your faith is in. So it's more of a quality question. Thus endeth my two reflections for the passage. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to entertain any questions. And if you have questions of stuff that I didn't bring up, that's totally fine, too. Like, I'm prepared to speak to any number of things in the passage if time and energy allow. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I would probably start with, like, what is it that I see in the centurion's faith? And I guess I see it as just this humble openness. Like, if you grew up Catholic, you know that phrase, like, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and you shall be healed. Like, that is actually where that comes from. So there is, like, a humble, uh, like, you don't, you're, I'm not even worthy for you to come here. Uh, and I know how powerful you are that you can do this from a distance. Um, and interestingly, what Cynthia and I were talking about this morning is this very similar to the case with Jairus' daughter, where they send friends, come to our house. And in that instance, at least my take is, there's sort of a lot of fear and anxiety and rushing Jesus to get there in time, like he physically has to be in the space in order to do it. But here's a Gentile who like, no, I don't even need you to get all the way here. Like, I know you can do it from there. So I think that I would say there's just a humble acknowledgement of Jesus' power. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but I'm not. And I think maybe to contrast that with presumption on the part of the Jewish people, that there's always this it's just always worse. I guess I don't know. I wish I had a more like careful way to say that. Like they just like there's just always this level of presumption. Like show us what you got, miracle man. Like they, their categories are just all all kinds of screwed up. Where the um, where the the centurion here just got a good good head on his shoulders, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. So. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you actually capture, like, the meaning of the word hope in terms of that's exactly what's happening here. Like, he is confident in his expectation that Jesus can do it and that Jesus doesn't even need to, like, be physically present in the room versus other people where it's hope means more of, like, a wish and a prayer kind of thing. Um, yeah, does that ca capture what you're saying? Because I think that's exactly right. So you just said it better. You should add the microphone. Yeah, excellent. And I think the mustard seed is a nice illustration of it's completely insignificant. Like, you wouldn't even notice it if it was there. And yet, when it grows, it's, it's really an impressive thing. So, yeah, that's excellent. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. Yeah, very interesting dynamic of, like, they seem to think higher of the centurion than the centurion himself. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and maybe they, ironically, have something to learn from the centurion. Because those power dynamics are kind of interesting. Like, he is worthy for, 
Like, I, I'm not, I, I find those sorts of power dynamics sketchy because he's worthy. Why? Because he's nice to us? Like, that's a little dubious. Um, and Jesus doesn't comment on that, so I guess I shouldn't either. But, um, yeah, they, maybe they need to take a cue from, from the centurion, which in Luke's gospel is always the ironic thing, that, that we could be learning an awful lot from people who supposedly don't know God. And as we cash that out in our own context, like to get to Jesus' amazement, are we engaged in, with people in such a way that like, I, I mean, I can say for myself, I know a lot of people for whom I could say they're not far from the kingdom in terms of pri their priorities are gospel-oriented. They just don't name it as Jesus yet. Uh, so I think that um, that's a takeaway for us versus like being aggressive and assuming everybody's wrong other than us. And we're just out there, you know, taking the world down, <laughs> like maybe a little bit of humility on our part. I think humility is always, it always helps. So yeah. All right. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to get off the stage. Let's pray together. God, as we have entered into your word, I pray that you would help us to find things that we connect with, uh, things that shape our hearts and our minds, things that draw us closer to you, closer to your love and your affection for us, things that empower us, things that are exciting, and things that encourage us to live faithfully before you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.